to to start things off kind of on the uh, on the AMA side of things um, we have a question from Solar he wants to know what's your earliest fantasy football memory man so I actually started playing fantasy football I'm I'm 37 now I started playing fantasy football gosh when I was in fifth sixth grade and this was at the probably at the real base of when like Yahoo, you, Yahoo was the first, plas- first platform I played on, uh, maybe 1997, 1998 timeframe. Oh, wow. uh, maybe, maybe a little bit earlier. And, uh, but literally like antiquated, I mean, back to where it was, you know, if you, you play on any site now, it's like you, you are used to just immediate results. And back then it was like, you know, you had to wait a day just to find out what happened, or you had to follow along, you know, at even the internet back then was pretty slim. So that was my first memory. I just remember doing like my first live draft on Yahoo. I had a really old beat up like PC that I had in my basement. Uh, And I actually remember doing like a live draft on Yahoo. And I thought it was so cool. Like you could (laughs) actually do, you know, something online live because any other sports I had done, it had always been pencil and paper, you know, ever since I was a kid, my dad actually, uh, as part owner, uh, has always been involved in a triple A baseball team here in Columbus, uh, the Columbus Clippers. Oh, cool. And um, ever since I was a kid, you know, I've, I, I was basically doing everything by hand. So, you know, that's how I was used to it. But now we're being able to like play a game online. So it was pretty cool. So that's my first memory is just doing my first live Yahoo draft, which is, geez, 20, 25 years ago almost at this point. Crazy that's how crazy. time flies. Hopefully Yahoo one of these days will actually make it easy to, to have a dynasty league on there. <laughs> right, right. Um, so kind of looking at looking ahead at the at the season um, in front of us, who would you say um, your biggest buys and biggest sells are, and what's kind of your general process at looking um, for each of um, these respective groups? All right, so here's how I'll frame it. I mean, anybody that's followed me before, I am in now 55 Dynasty Leagues, and I am a a very avid uh, high-stakes redraft player too. So I am very much a process-oriented person. Um, I'm probably setting close to 100 lineups a week, and so I do have to have a process in, in place of players a lot of the time. So I would say when I look at biggest buys and sells, the first thing I'm doing is I'm probably going through I'll give two different categories. Um, I think the easiest place to look for sells is always going to be at wide receiver. Um, basically, it's whoever the market likes, I don't like. And I know that sounds a little bit maybe kind of out there, but I'm all about the, if you've ever seen my uh, my diatribe about alpha receivers. Basically, receivers, wide receivers don't matter. That, that's one of my mantras. Uh, and what I mean is they don't matter when you're looking at all of the receivers that are non-alphas. And I define an alpha by, you know, a player that you think has potential to finish inside the top. A lot of people will say top 12, but I'll say it's more like top eight, top six to top eight. Uh, And it has to be a player that fits certain profile metrics. We'll get into that when we talk rookies. Uh, But it has to also be a player that fits two things. Um, There's an old thread on Twitter back from February where I deconstructed uh, wide receiver ones over the years. And it's kind of surprising. Uh, there's a lot of people that have studied volume at receiver. Uh, I think 140 targets historically has been like the magic number that you almost have to get to, to be a wide receiver one. Um, But I think on top of that, you know, you can get there maybe with a little bit less, but you have to have an efficient quarterback. It is very hard to get there outside of just absolute massive volume. uh, If you don't have an efficient quarterback, 
So when I look at sales, you know, I'm looking for players that have some sort of narrative on the market. Uh, and it's easy to do with wide receivers because we always get into the echo chamber of, you know, wide receivers are the most valuable, wide receivers last the longest, especially you get into the offseason. You know, everyone's kind of chasing the young receivers. Um, so I'm looking at players that don't have efficient situations or don't have efficient quarterbacks. Uh, so I'll just give an example. Um, it's maybe a little harder now. I know we're going to talk some Bengals, uh, but I would have been <laughs> selling T. Higgins earlier this year. Um, I like T. Higgins, but when he's getting valued at wide receiver 10, 12 range, uh, I can easily pivot off of him for a player that's probably worth a second round pick or less difference and just pivot from one receiver to another. So I'm basically looking at guys that are almost being seen on the market as alpha receivers, but there's some red flags. And with him, you know, maybe Burrow gets a little bit better. Uh, Burrow was one of the least efficient quarterbacks in the league last year. So T. Higgins would have been an example before the Jamar Chase rumors. Um, other ones would be A.J. Brown's an easy sell. And it's not that I don't like A.J. Brown, but can I get D.J. Moore in a 2023 first for A.J. Brown? I'm smashing that because I think the outcomes between A.J. Brown and D.J. Moore, maybe it's a 60-40 bet that A.J. Brown's better, but it's really low. You know, it's not that great of an outcome. Justin Jefferson, anybody that basically takes a big leap year one, easy sell. You know, we saw that with Juju Smith-Schuster. If you just took that criteria every year and you sold the receiver that's super young that popped off as a rookie, you made profit every single time. And now you can circle back on guys like DJ Moore and Juju Smith-Schuster and you can actually buy them. And they're not, that they're, you know they're good players. It's just truly what's their ceiling. You know, do they have, you know, wide receiver six or better ceiling? If they're just going to finish wide receiver 12, wide receiver 15, they really don't matter. Um, when I say they don't matter, they just don't matter between each other. Right. There's so many of them. There's, you know, there's 41 receivers that had 12 and a half points per game last year. So there's, there's a threshold. As long as I have enough of them, I'm covered. I can win at other positions. So hopefully that helps, but it's more of a process thing. So, you know, find receivers that you would say on the market are wide receiver twos, maybe high wide receiver twos, low wide receiver ones in people's eyes. Uh, and try to pivot off of them and maybe look for an efficient quarterback. There's some sneaky, efficient quarterbacks that you might not think of. Uh, Derek Carr, Ryan Tannehill, Baker Mayfield. You may not want to target receivers on these teams because you say, oh, they're not going to get a lot of volume. Um, but I'm fine with buying those guys if they're tied to an efficient quarterback. And it's easy to make pivots. You know, can I pick up extra picks? Uh, can I get an upgrade at another position? I'm always willing to sacrifice wide receiver, quote unquote, market value to do that. Totally. So um, in, in that case, just for example, uh, one of our users, Adam, he uh, posted like C.D. Lamb. Since he, he was like a, uh, a pretty top rookie this past season, would you be selling him? Yeah, so I think with C.D. Lamb, he kind of fits the category of where T. Higgins is. I mean, you have to make a bet on, you know, he's already valued as a top five, top six, top seven receiver in Dynasty. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now he's wide receiver seven if I look at DLF. So I think the question with C.D. Lamb is, can you pivot off of C.D. Lamb and get a profile? Can you go down to T. Higgins' profile? Um, another move, you know, again, you have to get the juice on top of it. But can you go down and pivot off of, uh, here's a good one. Uh, I, I prefer, I think Jamar Chase is better than C.D. Lamb. So can you get the pick that you have to secure Jamar Chase for C.D. Lamb? Can you wait maybe a couple picks on the clock and make that move? Um, you can maybe go down a little bit lower and say, you know, I'm fine with going to DJ Moore. I'm fine with going to T Higgins. You know, you're not really sacrificing a whole lot in terms of the potential 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, now, C.D. Lamb obviously has the profile, plus he has the situation. He has the quarterback efficiency, plus the volume, plus the pedigree. So, I mean, I don't want to sell him, but if you told me, you know, especially if we get into different formats, um, you know, the stock super flex format would be like 12 teams start 10. But, you, you know, I'm in some 16-team leagues with 13 starters. In that case, you know, I'm fine collecting at least moderately high-end assets. You know, I'm fine right. doing a two-for-one in a league like that. So I think it just depends. But I, I really think you have to just look at receivers and say, who are the guys that are spiking? And I call them fake alphas. If you don't think C.D. Lamb's a fake alpha, then don't sell him. Um, but if you think that there's a little bit, you know, of a question mark with their profile – uh, the key is to pivot down to somebody that has a similar profile. The market's just not going crazy over him right now. So that's why I mentioned DJ Moore. Yeah. He's as good of a prospect as anybody that we have up there. He's just not the brand new shiny new toy. Right. So, you know, Justin Jefferson or CD Lamb for DJ Moore Plus, uh, I- I'm interested in deals like that just based on process. So focusing, um, you know, when it comes to when you're looking at the upcoming season and looking at what kind of moves you can make with your team, um, with like that buy and sell uh, mentality of, you know, who you're going to buy, who you're going to sell. Um, are, are you sort of building out the bones of most of your teams based on the receiving core and that kind of fluctuation and value that they could have? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you, people have asked me, you know, a lot of times, well, if you're just going to sell every good receiver that hits, you know, what, what, what are you building your teams based on? Uh, I've made a big push this year uh, to really be, cognizant of my tiers at quarterbacks uh, i'm fine paying up right now for quarterbacks uh, that seems to be the trend but i'm actually doubling down on you know being somewhat aggressive you know i've done some startup drafts where i'm fine giving up a second and third round pick for a, an extra first round pick and locking in a, another elite quarterback um, especially if you're in leagues where there's a heavy tight end premium like a 175 or a 2.0 um, when there's less receivers that you have to start, it's all about the the scoring advantage at each position and then also the scarcity. So, you know, I'm again, I'm in 55 leagues. Uh, I'm track every single one of them on a spreadsheet. So I can tell you how many shares of every single player I have at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of my, a lot of my trades are based on, okay, you know, I have nine shares of AJ Brown. I could afford to maybe look for a specific spot to, to make a pivot. You know, it's more difficult. I think if you're only in, or five leagues, uh, you're not going to be as, I guess, reckless or as easy to trade those guys away unless it's the perfect deal. Uh, but no, I think right now it's, if it's a heavy tight end premium, locking in the positional advantages, uh, especially 1.75 or 2.0. If anybody's read that analytics of dynasty, um, I wrote a chapter this year um, about essentially the tight end premium advantage in the flexes and where it makes sense. So if anybody has that book, check it out. Because it really, if you do the math, tight end premium means nothing until you get to 1.75 or 2.0. Or if you're in leagues where you start to, that's when you actually can go hog wild because they're actually viable flexes compared to a a 1.5. So, you know, you're looking at, I I want positional advantages at other spots and I'm willing to sacrifice, even if it means I have to churn and burn. Um, Because if you look on your market in your league, there's probably a lot of these mid-tier wide receiver two, threes, and fours that are available. You know, you know, at any point I can go slightly overpay and obtain like a Tyler Lockett or Robert Woods or someone like that. And I know you're kind of hitting the reset button after a year or two, uh, but they're easy to acquire. They're not that difficult to go and get if you're willing to pay up. So it's not a scarce asset. That's why I'm usually willing to pivot off of wide receivers. 
Gotcha. And just as a quick follow-up, um, uh, our user Adam wants to know, who do you have the most shares of? So are you talking about, like, actually players that matter or <laughs> just players <laughs> that actually you'd say, like, are a top 100 player? I, I will say um, I've been very, very meticulous at quarterback. I do have 10 Patrick Mahomes, and I have 10 Joe Burrows. Um, now, a lot of those I actually got on the cheaper end. I think I've only had one startup this year where I've taken Patrick Mahomes. Um, but I'm, I'm most of my quarterback rooms are seven or more shares of pretty much everybody inside the top seven. Uh, and I've actually made some Deshaun Watson trades to get that under, you know, under seven at this point. Uh, but other than that, I would say, truthfully, one of the biggest mistakes that I made last year um, in the historic, I looked into it because of this mistake. But if you look past the last five years, uh, maybe the worst thing you can do in rookie drafts is take these late day two, early day three running backs that just kind of fit into like the mid to late second round, early third round. Um, if you go back over the last five years and you look at all the players that were drafted in that range, I mean, it is a long shot for you to find an Aaron Jones or a Chris Carson or a Tariq Cohen. I mean, my portfolio is littered with, um, let's see, nine Joshua Kellys, 11 Darrington Evans, 14 Anthony McFarlands. And I hate to go back in some of those drafts and see, you know, how, how many... How many moves did I pass up? Not only better players, but how many moves did I pass up? You know, hey, do you want you want a future second for that 3.04? And I go, <laughs> nah, you know, I got to take Darrington Evans because, you know, yeah. he's got good pedigree or he's got a good profile. So that typically that's a bad bet. You can go back the last three or four years and look at that, and, and you can just see that that's typically a bad bet drafting those profile running backs. Totally. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Josh Kelly truther, so I'm hoping that he... <laughs> I'm hoping that he works some miracles this upcoming year, but uh, yeah, we'll you see. and me both, man. <laughs> um, all right. Um, generally speaking, like as part of your process um, over the years, as you've be, as you've kind of tweaked things, um, what do you think has been the most like surprising um, advancement you've made in the way that you're looking at um, either evaluating players or or evaluating your own teams? Yeah, so a couple things. Uh, one thing I have to shout out to, it's it's pretty cool that we're on a chat like this because, you know, when I started playing Dynasty, I actually started playing Dynasty back in 2014. Even in like 2017, 2018, um, I mentioned him earlier, but Brian Malone was kind of a mentor of mine. And he um, he had some really good process tips and so did Rotoviz. Some of the old Rotoviz content from like five years ago, they were ahead of their time in terms of process. Um, and I adopted a lot of that stuff early. And... You know, maybe it evolves over years when you're in some leagues. I mean, I have quite a few leagues now that are going for four, five, six years. Uh, and people get smarter. You know, they see, you know, how you work and you see, you know, what your results are. But I think generally a lot of the old things that I used to say to do in Dynasty don't work anymore. Um, a lot of people that I'm playing with these days are a lot smarter. I think the average Dynasty player is a lot smarter. But I think it's constantly trying to find ways to... I call it forecasting. Like you almost have to predict what the community is going to be doing in like six to 12 months. And you have to make a bet and you almost have to pick a side. And the worst thing you can do is just sit and wait and wait for the results to come out in front of you because then you're going to have people that just pick on either side of those results, but you're not getting an advantage. You know, there's no marginal gain for you. I mean, yeah, you may take some big losses, but I'd rather take some big swings and be right 
and kind of predict what the future is going to be like, like in 12 months from now. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges is, you know, I always used to be the person that was going through and proposing, you know, fringe players that I was trying to move for a third or fourth round pick and just spamming those trades. And hopefully, you know, I would get a five, a nickel win here and a dime win there. Right. Uh, but people are generally smarter. I mean, I've found this offseason has been particularly difficult uh, to really make a lot of moves. It's almost like if you don't have specific players that you know everybody else is looking for or the specific type of move, it's really difficult. So some of those processes don't work anymore. Uh, so I think that's the thing is, is kind of evolving. Even if you're wrong, even if anybody here listening disagrees with my takes, I think you're probably better served to say, okay, well, I don't agree with this guy. I'm going to do the polar opposite. But I'm not just going to sit back and wait for everything to happen and then react and then pay the current market price to basically follow everybody else. I want to be paying half the price before it actually becomes the it thing to do. And then if I come out ahead, I have a big advantage because I was in early. Totally. Um, so kind of backpedaling to, to the original question, are there any sort of like players that you're looking ahead at the, like this upcoming year that – you don't think uh, people are properly evaluating that like you're going out and, and trying to scoop up? Hmm. So I'll give you, uh, I'll give you a couple answers to that. The first one uh, would be, I think that just some of the early looks at the 2022 rookie class, mm -hmm. um, I think we're going to probably struggle to, we're going to get to a point. If anybody remembers the 2019 rookie draft, uh, we had obviously a pretty, you know, pretty down class uh, in terms of running backs. You had Montgomery, Jacobs, and Miles Sanders, uh, and then you had Fanton Hawkinson. But if anybody remembers that class, you know there were many times where you got to the mid to late first round in in those classes or in that draft, and uh, you kind of weren't sure sure who to pick. You know, you didn't really want to pick a tight end, especially if you're not in a tight end premium league, just because it, it doesn't feel good to always pick. You know, kind of a tight end that you know you're not going to get a major ROI on. Uh, but I remember distinctly being roadblocked in a lot of those leagues. Uh, I'm at the 110. I'll trade it for any 2021 for, or 2020 first. Nah, I'm good. I know how good that class is going to be. You know, I'm fine. I I'm not trading out. Uh, and it came true. And um, I think we kind of see that with 2022. So one of my biggest things as, you know, some of the stuff I talked about earlier with pivoting off of wide receivers. You know, can you... Can you make deals right now that are not going to impact your win rate? So that's the biggest thing. You're not trading core players. You're not trading core quarterbacks. You're not trading positional advantages at tight ends. If you're going to do it, you're going to pivot off of receivers, and then maybe you're going to make some bets at running back. We'll talk about that later when we talk about Joe Mixon. For sure. Uh, but can I can I get 2023 first early? Because I think next time next year at this time, uh, you're not going to be able to get 2023 first. You're going to be offering up the 106 in the draft. And it's going to probably be a wide receiver. And people are going to, they're just not going to want to trade 2023 first. Because I think in Superflex right now, running backs and quarterbacks are what drive the value of a draft. If, if someone tells me it's a heavy wide receiver draft, I'm not interested. Just with how saturated the position is. So I think that's my biggest angle right now in forecasting. And it's trying to do it before the value be is known. Because I think a year from now, you're not going to be able to obtain those picks. They're already going to have dollar-for-dollar dollar value with the 2022s. For sure. And it's it's a year away. So I'm trying to get them now. Um, maybe I'll give some examples. But I, I think the easiest way to do that is exactly like we were talking about. You know, can I trade CD Lamb in the 301 
for T. Higgins in a 2023 first. And it might not feel good, but you know, understand that you're probably making a bet between T. Higgins and C.D. Lamb. It's probably like a 60-40 bet. T. T. Higgins could be better. Yeah, he has a profile. He had the first-year production. He checks all the boxes. He's just not seen as as good. So that's the bet I'm willing to take. And I'm trying to cluster trying to cluster multiple picks in the 2023 draft. I want to be the guy that has four firsts. Totally. So I control the board. You know what I mean? I want to have three, three of the top seven picks. So now all, set, all three picks that I have are actually more valuable because I'm kind of controlling where the board's going to go. So I'd say that that's a good example of kind of forecasting a year forward before the mass is figured out. Totally. And I, I think uh, you're certainly not alone here. We have a lot of people um, in like Debbie leagues here and whatnot who, who have also been uh, starting to beat the drum of the, the 23 class. Um, with the way that you're valuing like the 22 class um, and how it's how you think it's going to be uh, a sort of down year, are there any sort of um, if you're a contender this year, are there any guys that you'd be looking to target maybe with your 22 first, like on the uh, on the other side of things um, to, to go to kind of push you over the edge in that win now uh, process? Yes, I mean, if I think I have a late 2022 first, um, I think you're probably going to end up, I mean, there's, there's actually a couple decent running backs in 2022 that I like that I'll, I don't think get the notoriety just yet. Uh, but again, I mean, we always see running backs jump to the very top of a rookie draft because it's a scarce position. People are every year, people are looking for running backs, even if there's a lot of good ones. We're actually in a pretty strong pocket of time right now with dynasty running backs, but there's a constant obsession of like, okay, well, if I have Derrick Henry and Ezekiel Elliott and Joe Mixon and Aaron Jones, you know, I'm looking to get another guy to backfill just in case one of those players, you know, kind of fades away off my roster in the next year or two. Um I'm not a big fan of using draft picks to buy players right now. Um, I'm actually someone that likes to do the opposite, but I do think you can kind of go hog wild during the season and basically buy points. Um, So I'm a proponent of essentially, you know, take the pick now. I'd rather have a bunch of extra money laying around. It's almost like you've saved up money. You're not sure what you want to do with it. uh, And I have a three or four month window to go and basically splurge or it's going to go away. So I'm, I'm fine actually paying outside of market parameters during the season to literally buy points. And I think that's probably the best place or the best time you can address needs if you have quarterback needs. Uh, if you lost to Sean Watson, um, I'm sure there's some people that are sitting on some teams where you know their quarterbacks are Teddy Bridgewater and Andy Dalton and Jimmy Garoppolo. Or you have somebody like Jared Goff or Matt Ryan where it's like you know the plug could be pulled at any point and you know they don't have much resale value. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the place that I'd look to actually buy if I'm using 2022 first. I like I like Kirk Cousins, especially another year in. Uh, that would be one of the super flex quarterbacks I'd target. Um, and I, I kind of like making a big bet. If you wanted to go make a big bet right now, I, I wouldn't mind making a big bet on Jalen Hurts, only because I think the ceiling with him is pretty much higher than probably all but seven or eight quarterbacks in Dynasty. Uh, really, what you're what you're getting the discount on is p- a lot of people don't believe in him long term, so I'd rather make bets like that if I'm throwing around a random first. But I'd want to do it at quarterback. That's probably where I want to address my needs. I don't want to be buying, you know, I don't want to be the guy that offers a 2022 first to trade into the 204 so I can draft, um, you know, J- Jalen Waddle or something like that. To me, that's just a terrible process move. So I'm actually hoping to go the other way on deals like that. 
for sure. And we, with someone like Hertz, um, here here on the server with, with the general consensus, um, it seems like a lot of people are, are down on Hertz or at least down on his upside in the long term. Um, does that does his current position like with the Eagles does that scare you at all, or, or do you think that he he is worth like that sort of um, that late first round pick capital? Yeah, that's tough because I, I don't think a lot of people will actually sell Jalen Hurts if you're asking just like a random future first or a late first. Um, the historical data about second round quarterbacks isn't very good. Uh, there's a couple outliers. You know, Drew Brees was an outlier. Andy Dalton, Derek Carr, like those guys had sustained careers. Um, but a lot of the other guys that are drafted in the second round, I mean, they typically get opportunity, uh, but they have to fight for it a lot more. So, you know, I, I this might be a weird comparison, but I kind of see Jalen Hurts as a higher pedigree, higher upside, better talent version of like Gardner Minshew last year, where he's got everything stacked against him. He's got the starting job. I think he has more job security than Gardner Minshew did, but, you know, he's going to be fighting an uphill battle. You know, I, I don't think the Eagles are going to be very good next year. So yeah. it's almost going to be like, okay, Jalen Hurts can play well, but any team that could pick inside the top eight, top 10 is always going to be a threat. Even if they're going to have to pay a lot to move up and get a quarterback, they're always going to be in the discussion. Uh, and from a dynasty perspective, you know, you're going to feel a little uneasy about going into the season with a bunch of quarterbacks that are QB twos and the team has a top 10 or better pick. You're just going to feel uneasy. And you know what's going to happen when the season ends. If the Eagles go 5-12 and 12, and Jalen Hurts is solid but not obviously not going to be great if they're 5-12 and 12, and they're picking, I don't know, 7th next year in the draft, you're going to sweat all offseason. Are the Eagles going to take a quarterback? Are they going to move up? So that's the risk. You know you're probably going to buy an asset that's going to depreciate. Um, but, you know, there's still an outcome that – he does have like a Dak Prescott or a Russell Wilson career arc and he plays really well and he is the future starter. I think the upside, if you hit on that is a lot higher. So that's why I mentioned him as a buy. Gotcha. And I mean, who knows five and 12, that's maybe good enough to make the playoffs in the NFC East. <laughs> Very um, true. Uh, let's see. Uh, so kind of piggybacking off of this, we, we've really kind of, been dancing around a lot of different concepts here, <laughs> but yeah, don't um, roll with everything though. Yeah, um, but our user Solar wants to know, um, as a general trend, uh, and I guess this is more of a clarification than anything, but do you find yourself more likely to react slowly to news and performances, um, like s sticking with your prior evaluation, or do you react quickly to, to take advantage of the shift? And I guess this would apply more towards um, the actual season that's going on, because it sounds like you're always looking to get an edge and, and an angle before that opens up. But during the season, um, how do you generally react? Well, I think this year actually was a really good example of this because obviously we had the, the COVID season and it was already crazy. There was already things going on. Every, I mean, this season, I think everyone agreed, this past season was really exhausting, especially if you're trying to put out content and manage, you know, however many leagues I was in. Um, it, it was a constant uphill battle to stay up on the news. Um, but I think I actually made some savvy trades this year uh, based on the news. And it's more understanding positional leverage and it's more understanding, you know, where can you, where can you not be scared 
to make a, a loss on paper or a trade that's a loss on paper. I'll give everyone a couple examples. Uh, I made a couple deals this year. As soon as he got hurt, as soon as Cortland Sutton got hurt, uh, I was trading Cortland Sutton. If you remember, this was, I believe, week three when Cortland Sutton got hurt. It was week two or week three. It was really early on. Yeah. And I, I, I traded Cortland Sutton. I gave Cortland Sutton and a third for T. Higgins. Uh, gave Cortland Sutton for Cl Chase Claypool. You know, I was literally just saying, okay, I don't really care about the positional value here because it doesn't have a lot unless I think Cortland Sutton is an alpha, which, you know, in a year three where he tears an ACL, then I'm guessing he's probably not going to be an alpha. I'm pretty confident he will never be an alpha. And when I say alpha, meaning top 12 receiver, not just from production, uh, value-wise, I don't think he'll ever get there. He'll never be seen in that light. And it's unfortunate, but the ACL injury will do that. You know, he's coming up on now where, you know, he's a free agent after next year. So I basically just said, you know, I don't care if his value bounces back. I'm going to take what I can. So any receiver that gets hurt during the season, it automatically pivot off of them if you can get 90% of it, especially if it's a season-ending injury. Uh, same thing you can do with running back. It's a little harder with running back, uh, especially if it's one of these, you know, the most valuable commodities other than elite quarterbacks and elite tight ends um, are the running backs on the rookie contracts. So it's really, really hard. Uh, to want to pivot off of a guy that's like a second-year running back because it's not that they might have the best ceiling, but there's just no stress of having to worry about their situation uh, year to year, especially if they have the pedigree from some of the guys from last year. Uh, but just to answer your question, in season, I'm very aggressive in pivoting off of players, and that's because I play in so many leagues. Uh, when it comes to running backs and receivers, I'm not very interested in you know saying, okay, I'm going to wait it out. Uh, there's always a period where... You know, if I like Cortland Sutton now, I traded all my Cortland Sutton shares away. I've bought four back this offseason. And I know I can always get them back at you know, maybe not a, the same price, but you know I can wait. Maybe if I have a team that falls out of it, I can start buying players like that. But I'm usually very aggressive. If I know a guy has a season-ending injury, done. Great. Gone. I, I'm not worried about the long-term value because there's so much that changes. Gotcha. And then conversely, um, outside of the season, uh, Solar wanted to follow up on by asking, what do fantasy owners spend far too much time on um, doing on a week-to-week -week or a month-to-month -month basis um, in the off-season? In the off-season. So this is, this is interesting. Um, I think when it comes to running back evaluation, um, now it's easier when you have kind of a class that isn't all that exciting. Uh, but it's crazy how much time people have spent trying to figure out this year, especially, you know, who is the running back four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 off the board. And I mean, you could literally ask everybody in this chat what your order is. And I wouldn't be shocked if you get seven or eight different combos. And it just kind of tells you if you have eight different answers to the same question, then it's probably not worth spending your time because there's still something missing from that puzzle that you're not going to get until everybody gets it. You know, like you're, you're probably not going to know. There's going to be a couple running backs this year that get drafted on day two of the NFL draft. And it might be the guys you thought it might not, but you also know how people are going to react to that. You know, if we have a Trey Sermon to Pittsburgh in the second round or Kenneth Gainwell to Arizona or something like that, I mean, immediately they're going to jump up based on nothing other than their landing spot. And that somebody has to slot into that spot. So I think running back evaluations, especially, um, and then tight ends for sure. Uh, tight ends, I, I know pretty much everybody in this industry that I've talked to, I haven't found a person that knows how to peg tight ends. It's usually some combination of like 
draft capital, athleticism, maybe some production. And that's pretty much it. I mean, that's how I look at tight ends, but trying to study them and try to predict, you know, who, how is this coach going to use this tight end or how are they going to be used in an offense? Or, you know, now you have some film people that are saying uh, for fantasy, they, they don't want a tight end to be a good blocker on film because it used to be, well, you want him to be a well-rounded player so they can get snaps. And now it's like, no, I, I actually don't want him to land in a place, especially with an antiquated coaching staff that might say, oh, that guy's a really good blocker. I'm going to keep him out there to block. Right. It's almost like you want the opposite. You you want a guy like Evan Ingram that only plays 55% of the snaps, but you know when he's out there, that's all he's out there for is to get targets and run routes. So I, I just haven't figured out how to peg tight ends, and I just haven't really found anybody that's an expert on it either. So you, you might as well just wait and you know buy him when you think so or just buy profiles. That's it. Totally. So you'd just be, uh, if you're buying profiles, um, do you mean like you would be big on like, I mean, the, the big one this year is obviously Kyle Pitts. Yeah, it's my only concern with Kyle Pitts. He's basically a bulletproof prospect. I know you guys had um, the FB encounter on. Um, he's comparably, like, it's true when you say he's the best, one of the best tight end prospects ever. My only worry with Kyle Pitts is exactly what I just said. You know, I know people have mocked him to go to the Bengals. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I listen to about six to eight Bengals podcasts a day, and uh, I don't think Kyle Pitts is on their board, which is good. But trust me, it's a good thing because that's, you know, that's one of those coaching staffs that I don't fully trust actually understands how to use their players. And my worry with Kyle Pitts is he goes somewhere, and he can be everything you would want from a tight end. He could line up at receiver. My only worry is he literally has the letters TE next to his name. And from fan, from a fantasy perspective, I, I really don't want the team to look at him like a tight end at all. Right. I'd almost rather him be, you know, I want him to be a receiver with tight end eligibility. Uh, so I think he's one, but other than that, other than profiles, I'm basically just looking at athleticism and just being patient. Um, one of my, I would say my biggest buy at, at tight end is Albert Okwebenam. I mean, that, that guy is, He's not a bulletproof prospect, but if you take his cohort as a prospect and you compare it to like tight ends over the last 20 years, uh, that's a guy that I'm fairly confident will not only have a solid career, uh, but as long as he comes back from his ACL injury, I'm also confident he will get eight more chances just because of that. And I want guys like that. You know, it might take him three landing spots and six years to figure it out, um, but I could see him. I mean, I think his floor career-wise is somebody like Jared Cook. I think he'll have a, a career where he'll bounce around and he'll give you some production, but you know, he may hit in year four or year five and come out of nowhere and us go, well, why were we never on this profile? So I think he's one that I would definitely buy and you can get him pretty cheap. Totally. Um, let's see here. We kind of skipped around here a little bit with some of the questions. Um, well, f following up on that, um, on just kind of your general process, especially given the sheer amount of leagues that you're in, um, what would you say that your edge is in the leagues that you do play in? Um, what are are what areas of dynasty would you say that you're less specialized in and how do you supplement that area um, of your dynasty knowledge? I love this question because uh, we have a Patreon, um, Dynasty and Chill, patreon.com slash dynasty and chill. And one of the things I do is uh, one of our subscription services is um, basically just a team breakdown tier, and I'll break down people's teams. We probably do 15 of them a month. There's 15 in that tier, um, and there's basically – I'm huge on 
roster construction. I have an accounting and uh, statistics background. Uh, so I basically look at a league like a math equation. Um, before I even, I don't even care about players necessarily. I'll go in and just diagnose the league and say, okay, here's where the leverage spots are. Here's where the positional advantage can be attained. Here's where I think the scarcity is going to be based on the current dynasty market. And just attack the league that way. Then I'll give a general strategy as, okay, you've told me the parameters. It's a 14-team league. It's a 1.75 tight end premium league. There's 11 starters. There's 32 roster spots. There's five taxi squad spots. And it's one of those heavy flex leagues where you only start one player at each position. I would do an analysis basically of where the positional advantages are and where I think the scarcity is going to be. And then I'll say, okay, you go and get the players that you want, but follow this general template. And based on the settings, based on the scoring, based on the rules, here's where I think there's going to be some advantages to be had in free agency. You know, when you get to the waiver wire, here's what I think you may be able to find. Here's what you're not going to be able to find. You know, trying to predict what the market of your league is going to be. Um, so that's, I would say that's my biggest strength is being able to literally diagnose the league without knowing any of the players on your team. Um, I'll actually break down the league before I even look at the person's team. And then I'll go through and work with them. Okay, how can we start doing you know, this type of pivot or this type of move where you can get back towards your optimal roster construction? Now, that takes a lot of time. Uh, again, I'm very process-oriented. So I'd say my biggest weakness is when someone asks me, okay, who do you prefer between this player and this player? Uh, I a lot of times just give the cop-out answer and say, well, they're in the same tier. I don't care. You know, my personal answer would be, okay, I have uh, eight shares of Joe Mixon and four of Aaron Jones. So I probably take Aaron Jones just because it balances it out. Maybe balances out my risk a little bit. It spreads out my exposure. But that's that's not my strength. I'm not the guy to come to for individual players. Um, and I'm very analytical. Probably 95% of my work is purely numbers on a spreadsheet. Um, I think I could probably do just as well as I do without even watching football. Uh, so if you're asking me, you know, what does this player do well on film? I just throw my hands up. There's plenty of other people in the community that I leverage for what are you seeing? You know, I, so if I can't analyze it uh, and I can't equate it down to a number, uh, that's probably my biggest weakness. Totally. Um, so earlier you mentioned that, you know, uh, you're, you're pretty quick to move on from players, even the RBs um, who, who get hurt um, and out for the season. Uh, but Huge Hunter wants to know, um, how do you balance the timing of moving on from older running backs early enough to get value and avoid being caught with the bag, but not so early that you look like a dumb-dumb moving on from two seasons of top-end production still on the table? Yeah, I like that question uh, because I actually wrote an article last year for DLF, and it went back and looked at the last 10 years and where every single running back finished basically RB1 all the way to RB36. And it, it, if you update the numbers, maybe I'll find another place to update the numbers, but it's very interesting if you look at uh, where each slot slots in. And we're just talking like PPR leagues. We're not getting into point per carry leagues. Uh, and we'll just say a stock format where you have two starters. There's usually a threshold, and Rotoviz does a lot of good work on this. Uh, Sean Siegel, a lot of the other guys, they've adopted you know, a pretty heavy zero RB approach. And you know, I think that it gets a little bit of a bad rap because what they're really saying with that is there's a cutoff, whether it's redraft or dynasty, to where your running back is actually a difference maker or just a positional advantage or they really don't matter. 
I think that's kind of where we get lost. So I'll explain it this way. Uh, there's a minimum number, and I have to pull the numbers up. I don't have them in front of me. Uh, but if you look back over the last 10 years, there is a minimum number that it takes to be like the RB1 overall. So think of the seasons that you saw from like Christian McCaffrey in 2019. Right. And before that, you had Todd Gurley, David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell. I mean, those guys had outlier seasons to where it's like they are literally taking up almost two running back spots with the points that they're scoring. Now, that usually takes a floor of targets and receptions to get to that number. Now, that's a little bit higher than what the RB2 is. There's some guys that have finished as RB2s, like Ezekiel Elliott. Um, Aaron Jones came close. Uh, Aaron Jones was the RB2 a couple years ago. It, that takes a minimum number of touches and targets, but they're probably not the elite number of targets and receptions. You know, you're probably not getting to the 80 plus like you see from Kamara or McCaffrey, but they're still at a positional advantage. Just either it's based on touchdowns or it's based on just total touches. But you go down the line and you can spot some trends to where it's like, my research said between like RB3 and RB9 is where you're getting a positional advantage. So if you truly want a positional advantage at your RB2 spot, you really have to target a guy in that range. And I'm talking production here. I'm not just talking dynasty value. So then you look at the current dynasty ADP and you say, what is making up a player's value? You know, I have these numbers in front of me. Let's say over the last 10 years to finish as the RB9, you've had to have 260 plus touches. And some of those touches, X amount of those touches have to be targets and have to be in the form of receptions. So then you ask yourself, you know, can a guy like J.K. Dobbins ever get there? Ever. And I think from a touch perspective, I don't think he can. I don't think they run enough plays. Uh, I think they split the touches too much. So just from the touch numbers, I don't think he can get there. I think it's a zero. I think it's a very, very, very low bet. So what you'd have to bet on is, you know, J.K. Dobbins has an 1,800-yard season or he has 17 touchdowns. That's the bet you're making to get him to positional advantage range. So I don't even care how long he's going to last in Dynasty. I look at him as RB7 in Dynasty. The reason he's RB7 is because he's a second-year guy on a, on a rookie contract because he's seen as having slightly less risk than guys that are a lot lower. So it's really, it comes down to what is making up their value. So to answer the initial question, I'm at a point now where I see guys like Aaron Jones. I mean, Aaron Jones still has difference-making running back in his outcome, yet he's currently valued as RB15. So clearly, he's there because people don't believe he's going to last for that long. He might have a year or two left. Uh, Derrick Henry, Nick Chubb. I mean, Derrick Henry, we've seen do it. Nick Chubb, probably one of the most overrated fantasy running backs over the last three years in Dynasty. And he's great. He's a great player. Uh, but if you look at his historic snap share, he only has 34, only about 34 uh, snaps a game over his career. That, that's just not enough to get there. And you can blame situation. You can say, well, if Kareem Hunt wasn't there, he has upside if Kareem Hunt gets hurt. Uh, he doesn't meet those minimum thresholds. So I look at somebody like Nick Chubb and say, I'm fine pivoting off of him for, you know, I, I traded Nick Chubb and a 209 in a Superflex League for Joe Mixon and a 2023 first. And it's not because I think Nick Chubb's not good. I just think the range of outcomes between a guy like Mixon and Chubb are not that different. Uh, Chris Carson is another one. You know, if you easily want to get a home run deal, you know, you can buy Chris Carson. Historically, he's basically the same as Joe Mixon and Nick Chubb. He's slightly better than Mixon and slightly worse than Chubb uh, historically. But his value is there because people just don't believe in him long term. Um, and I don't see a guy like Nick Chubb being a guy I can believe in long term. So it's really just weighing what makes up their dynasty value. So circling back, I know I'm long-winded on this question, but you know, guys I want to buy are guys that I think can reach that difference-making level. And obviously, if they still have some free years on their rookie contract where I don't have to worry about 
immediate competition and I don't have to worry about a contract dispute or whether they're going to get extended or franchise tagged or whatever. Um, I think Antonio Gibson is a massive buy. Um, I would probably make a bet on Antonio Gibson ahead of Cam Akers and ahead of J.K. Dobbins, but you don't have to pay that price. Uh, same with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. You know, I think he's probably a longer shot. But truthfully, what is the difference between J.K. Dobbins and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire? You know, why is there two rounds difference in terms of startup value almost between those two guys? It doesn't really make sense. Uh, so really, you have to look at running backs. I'm only betting on running backs two years at the very, very, very most, probably one year. Um, so I'm always constantly willing to reset the button uh, and move to the guys that I think can hit those difference-making levels. Because if you finish RB11 versus RB20, truthfully, the impact on your lineup, whether the, the win rate week-to-week week is basically zero. So as long as I have a placeholder in that spot, I don't care who it is. I want the cheapest on the market. Gotcha. So it sounds like like a lot of the time you're pivoting to kind of guys who, um, depending if you're like with a surplus or a deficit in value, trading for guys that you think are going to be uh, – sort of similar production wise, but maybe getting um, a little more return, like a, like an extra pick or, or something just to kind of uh, not change the production so much on the team, but give you a little more capital to play around with in the future. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Let's say you have over the last couple of years, you have collected, um, you have Nick Chubb, you have Josh Jacobs and you have JK Dobbins. I basically see them as all being in that their highest upside is that low end of the difference-making tier, maybe like the RB8 or 9. Mm-hmm. Um, and their likely outcome, at least if I have to bet in April without knowing anything about what's going to actually be there on week one of the NFL season, I'm fine taking one or two of those guys and pivoting down to players that I think are of lesser value. So it's really looking at where do I have, you know, if I have a backfield that is anchored by like Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey, I'm going to be very meticulous on who I pivot off to. You know, I probably want to target somebody like Antonio Gibson because I have a shot to maybe replace that potential, you know, difference making player on my team. It's probably unlikely, but at least I think I have a shot just based on some of the minimums for each one of these slots. So I think that's where you can make the money because if you look at the current ADP and dynasty at running back, I mean, does everybody kind of feel that it's just kind of like the haves and the have-nots? There's about like 20 to 25 running backs that you can probably trust, and then everybody else is stay tuned. Let's see who they draft. Let's see who they bring in. Let's see who's getting used where. Um, But I think there's some money to be made in that, you know, RB7 to RB20 range with a lot of guys with similar outcomes. So I'm really looking at what makes up their value. You know, why is J.K. Dobbins RB8? And why is Josh Jacobs RB13? I mean, just ask yourself that question. And a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that Josh Jacobs hasn't lived up to what people thought he would do. And basically what I'm saying, I don't think J.K. Dobbins will. So a year from now, he's going to be in Josh Jacobs' shoes where, okay, he's RB12, RB13, but he's not worth paying up for. So that's how I look at running backs. I'm not as big on, uh, I think what I talked about earlier, gone are the days where you can now trade Joe Mixon for Najee Harris, or you can trade David Montgomery for the pick to take Javante Williams. Like people are a lot smarter now. They're not going to take on your year four, year five, year six running backs. If they're an equivalent prospect in the draft, Uh, you saw that last year. I don't know if anybody tried to trade 
you know, Dalvin Cook for Jonathan Taylor or whatever. I mean, it was a hard deal to do last year, and I think it's only going to continue to get harder. People are not going to – they're not going to fall for that like they did two or three years ago. Totally. And, you know, just anecdotally speaking, as a Ravens fan, it, it hurts to hear that, but I don't disagree. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's – and I'll just add this. I don't hate J.K. Dobbins. I don't like J.K. Dobbins' value, and it's not that he doesn't – there, you could write yourself a narrative that he has 15 touchdowns. It's possible, but I just don't like betting. I don't like betting on guys to get yards in touchdowns to get their fantasy points. That's the least predictive and the least efficient way to do it. You know, I, I'm I'm fine betting on guys that I know are going to get a floor of touches, and if they're involved in the passing game, that's all you really need to get there. So that's all I'm, I'm hating on Dobbins. I know people like him. Um, I just. You know, I just see his value is capped out. And I look at him and I say his value is basically because he's a second-year running back that was a good prospect. That's it. It has There's no math behind it. It's just strictly community hype. Totally. Um, moving on, uh, one of our users, June, wants to know, if you could absolutely remove one common behavior from Dynasty strategy, uh, what would you remove? And the opposite, if you could normalize one uncommon behavior so that it became... Uh, more common in dynasty strategy, what would you normalize? Man, that is a tough question. If I could remove a common behavior. Hmm. All right, so one thing I'm not a big fan of is I, I, I can't stand formats where it's very restrictive in terms of, you know, I guess when I say restrictive, I mean, I'm... I'm very much, I like you to be able to build your team the way you want. The less constraints on your roster, the better. So I'll give a couple examples, like a auction startup draft. If you ever do an auction startup draft, there should be no requirements in terms of how many players you have to win or how many players you have to leave with. Um, and there should never be any sort of minimums that you have to hit uh, in anything. So anything where it constrains, you know, positionals, how many players you can carry each position, minimum requirements i don't think there should be any like that very much about you do whatever you want everyone pays their dues um you know build your team however you want uh the other thing would be i can't stand when i go to trade for somebody's future picks and they don't want to pay their they don't want to pay their league dues um i wish there was a way we could normalize that without risking you know that somebody bails on their team after trading their picks uh, but I'm I'm very aggressive, and like I've talked about, I'm very much trying to forecast things, and I've had a lot of deals that don't work because it's I, I don't want to pay my dues, or you know, right. I'm in a hundred fifty dollar league, and I just don't want to pay next year's dues unless I have to, especially you know, especially if I'm not getting anything that's helping me right now. You know, I'm not winning any games right now. Totally. Uh, so I think that'd be one thing I wish we could. I, I don't know a better solution for it, but it kind of drives me crazy. Gotcha. Um... User Adam wants to know, uh, or rather, he says, and we're going to start getting more into the strictly rookie side of things here, uh, but he said, Kadarius, uh, Kadarius Tony, also known as Hilarious Phony, and Gregarious Jabroni in this Discord, I've never heard him referred to as either of those things, um, is a prospect this year that the Dynasty community seems to be fading pretty hard. Generally speaking, how do you reconcile guys that have a poor college production and analytics profile, uh, but have early expected draft capital and great athletic testing? Good question. Um, I'll be completely blunt. Um, I will not have Kadarius Tony in any leagues. Um, I have a, actually, 
you know, DF Bean Counter was on and he he has his own models. I'm trying to actually work on receiver models that incorporate market value. So I probably weigh uh, some of the some of the production metrics, but also uh, I'm very big on incorporating. Uh, I think there is something to be said about deconstructing what we've seen historically from prospects in terms of height, weight, speed, and then also their age. Because we know, you know, if you look back at the last five years, almost every single receiver that has had a massive exponential spike in value after their rookie year, yes, they're good players. Yes, they flashed on the field. Yes, they were good prospects. But one of the things they have in common, they almost all were 21 years old during their rookie year. So I almost look at that and say, okay, maybe that's not a trend. Maybe that's something that's not predictive going forward. But it makes me look at prospects like Canarius Tony's out because he doesn't really have any profile to speak of. The only thing he's going to have in his box is that he might go in the first round, probably top 40, top 45 picks. But that's always going to have going for him. But even somebody like Devontae Smith, you know, I asked this question in our Patreon chat today. If Devontae Smith had 80 catches, 1,000 yards, and six touchdowns as a rookie, will the dynasty community ever see him at the same value as A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Justin Jefferson, C.D. Lamb? did a poll, and it was like 90% no. So that just tells me right there, there are certain players that they are almost dead on arrival in terms of their upside or their alpha potential. You know, with a guy like Devontae Smith, he probably has to prove it for two or three years before he's ever going to even be close to being seen in that value light. Think like Calvin Ridley or Terry McLaurin now. But I think those guys are even capped out. I think their value ceilings are even capped out. So basically, I look at somebody like Devontae Smith or Kadarius Toney, you're drafting them. The only outcome, the only out you have on those guys is they produce the way that you think. You know, they fit whatever you're drafting them for. You know, a wide receiver two spot on your team. That's your only out. As soon as you draft them, you know, they really only have one place to go, and that's down in terms of their value because they don't have a lot of upside built in. That's kind of my thoughts. I mean, Kadarius Tony, if you look at some of his numbers, I mean, he's 23.1 years old um, on draft day. And then you look at some of the other things that he brings to the table. I mean, he's the 20th oldest prospect in the draft. Um, if you look at his breakout age, it's 30th in the class. Uh, now, he did have slightly above, this class is about 2.2 yards or average um, yards per team pass attempt. He's slightly above that, but just very slightly. Uh, so he's about middle of the pack for the class. Uh, but everything else is, you know, he, he really doesn't just check. He doesn't check a lot of other boxes. You know, he's not a, a height, weight, speed freak. He's about moderate or about average uh, compared to all of those. So he just doesn't, there's not nothing really exciting for him. So I'm actually hoping he goes in the first round. Uh, it'll probably push a prospect that I like better to me. Totally. Um, so for your personal preferences, um, as we're kind of in the twilight before the draft here, um, user Kenzo wants to know, what are your top three player and team combinations that you're hoping to see um, in this upcoming draft for fantasy purposes? Hmm. So I was thinking about this question because I did see this one earlier. Um, so here's what I was saying. I I'm chasing... And I'll throw out some names. I'm chasing some landing spots that, because if we kind of if we kind of forecast what a super flex rookie draft is going to look like, I'm pretty confident that the top ten picks in a lot of leagues, we're going to have five quarterbacks, we're going to have three running backs, we're going to have a tight end, and we're going to have Jamar Chase. So I think we're probably looking at a class where the late first to late second round is just going to be heavily populated with wide receivers. Um, and if you can't move off of those picks. You know, I would implore everybody to kind of shop around with some of those picks now because 
as soon as you get stuck in the middle of that tier and everyone can see the board in your league and there's five receivers in the same tier and you're picking in the second slot, it's going to be really hard to get value there. You almost kind of want to do it before everyone sees the board and just take the risk that you're projecting the tiers right. Uh, but here's what I'll say. I think that I'm going to actually hope that a receiver that I like, uh, maybe somebody like Diami Brown, um, maybe somebody like Seth Williams, uh, ends up going to a place like the Titans. Because I know what's going to happen. Any receiver that goes to like the Titans or the Ravens, people are going to automatically fade that receiver because the quote-unquote landing spot. And I'm actually hoping to get prospects like that maybe in the early third round because of that landing spot. And if you look at efficiency numbers last year, um, I went out and charted all of the quarterbacks from last year. Uh, Lamar Jackson was actually, if you look at Lamar Jackson's numbers per, per attempt and per completion, he was actually 15% above league average uh, per attempt and 18% above league average per completion when you're talking about fantasy points produced. The problem with Lamar Jackson, he just doesn't throw a lot but he's a very efficient quarterback when he throws. So there's other guys that fit that same mold. Ryan Tannehill is actually second in the league over the last three years, or over the last two years since he took over as the starter. Also, he's an efficiency monster. He's basically another like Russell Wilson or Patrick Mahomes in the efficiency department. So any receiver that's the wide receiver two or three, or at least gets, I don't know, probably 90 targets to get there under Ryan Tannehill is going to be somebody that I'm going to target. Uh, but I'm actually thinking people are going to fade those players big time because of the landing spots. So I was going to say, you know, any receiver that goes to Green Bay, any receiver that goes to <laughs> Kansas City, yeah. any receiver that goes to, you know, really there's not any other place. But even a receiver that went to like the Rams or the Chargers, you know, people are going to be after that player because they're going to see it as, you know, a really good offensive situation. Um, I'm chasing the efficiency. You know, I'll chase the Ryan Tannehill, Lamar Jackson. Uh, Derek Carr is another one. I know people probably don't want them to take a receiver, but if they did, I'd be interested uh, in the Browns. Um, I think the Browns, uh, Baker Mayfield grades out pretty well in the efficiency. He's more than 6% above league average over the last two years. So that's another one that people are going to say, oh, low volume offense. I don't want them. Uh, but again, we're shooting for we're shooting for wide receiver twos and threes. That's what these second round receivers are going to be. I don't expect them to be alphas. So if it combines a profile like with an efficient quarterback, that's where I'm going to go after because I think the market's going to fade him. Cool. And uh, that's actually a great segue into our next question here. Um, so June asks, uh, who is the most likely dynasty diamond in the rough this draft for you? Um, so say taking day three or an undrafted free agent, um, who's most likely to be a dynasty dud this draft for you? Um, likely to be like a... Um, a rookie first in either one QB or uh, super flex. All right. So the first one, uh, this is somebody that I've been, uh, I've been hammering on for over two years now. Uh, but Anthony Schwartz for Auburn, that's my guy in this class. Uh, he is the youngest receiver in the class. Uh, he's an early declare. Um, if you look up some of his metrics, I mean, he was 12th in breakout age. Uh, he didn't really have the, if you look at some of the other stuff, like the average yards per team pass attempt, you know, he's pretty low in that department, which is a little bit of a concern. Uh, but then we also just look at, you know, his speed score and his height adjusted speed score. The only box that he doesn't check right now for me, other than the adjusted yards per team pass attempt is the, or the average yards per team pass attempt is the draft capital. I'm a little worried about when he gets drafted. Um, but I have a, I call it an alpha rating, but it basically is taking 10 different things that I'm looking for that make up what a dynasty alpha receiver looks like. 
Um, and there are two guys in the class that score an eight, uh, Jamar Chase and Rondell Moore. Uh, there's one player that scores a seven, which is Rashad Bateman. And then there's only three guys that score a six, and Anthony Schwartz is one of them. And that doesn't fit with, you know, kind of where you see people slotting in some of these receivers. You know, usually you see him down in the teens in terms of where he's at. So I think he's definitely the guy that I'm going to be targeting. Um, now he may be pigeonholed as a one-trick pony, you know, only a deep threat. Uh, but do a little digging on his profile. Do a little digging on, you know, his background. I mean, everyone knows his speed. Uh, ran a 10.07 meters as a 17-year-old. Uh, I think the uh, Olympic record was 9.59. So, I mean, this is legitimately a guy that if they didn't cancel the Olympics last year, had a chance to be in the Olympics as an 100-meter sprinter. I mean, probably the fastest NFL player in terms of pure speed that's ever been in the league once he gets drafted. Um, so that's one of my guys that I'm, I'm kind of hoping he goes on day day two of the NFL draft. Uh, but I still think people are going to fade him just because he, he didn't have the hype and I don't understand it. Um, so that's my guy. Now, I, I kind of already talked about Devontae Smith, so I won't. I won't really crap on Devontae Smith anymore. Um, so in terms of a guy that you think is going to be a first-round pick, I know there was a question about Jalen Waddle. I'm still kind of torn on Jalen Waddle. Um, you know, he doesn't check a ton of boxes, unfortunately. But you know, th- there could be something about what people say they see about Jalen Waddle that you know I'm going to still have some exposure to him, even though if I just looked at it on a spreadsheet, I really wouldn't be interested in what his profile said. Uh, but if I had to bank on maybe a guy that I'm wrong on that I may overfade just because I don't think we have an assured evaluation on him, I would say he'd be the one that I'd bet to be a bust. But I'm kind of hedging my bets saying that there's a chance that he's an outlier that, you know, we just miss. Because, um, yeah, his career is really weird. If you look at his numbers, you know, he was really good as a freshman. And you hear the narrative, well, he got squeezed out as a sophomore because they had Ruggs and Judy and then Devontae Smith. Uh, and then he got injured last year. So he kind of has like this incomplete profile. And he's also an older, he's an older early declare. He is an early declare, but he's older. So I'm not a big fan of a guy coming into the league when they're almost not going to play their first game until they're 23. I think his ceiling is capped there from a value perspective as well. So I'll say him as the bust uh, that's probably going to go in a lot of first rounds. Totally. And following up on that, um, Leroy wants to ask, uh, could you explain what happened with Waddle's sophomore year? And I, I also take it uh, backpedaling a little bit. Al uh, wants to know, would you agree that Jalen Waddle's uh, analytical profile is sneaky impressive? And it, it sounds like it's a no. Sorry, repeat the question. I think we cut out real quick. Oh, yeah, uh, my bad. Uh, user Al wants to know, would you agree that Jalen Waddle's analytical profile um, is sneaky impressive? I guess it depends on what you're looking at. I mean, I like the fact that he's an early declare. Um, he's going to get the draft cap. But if you look at his, his average yards per team pass attempt, it's really low. Uh, he capped out at a 1.7. Uh, that's that's lower than all the other Alabama receivers. So that's something to look at. Uh, that's something that it's a better way. And I know that's kind of a new stat, but I'm kind of digging it this year because we have a lot of the production metrics are all over the place uh, because of last season. But I think that's a little bit of a smoother way to measure like true market share impact in terms of what what chunk you're cutting out of an offense. Uh, he's 28th in the class in that category. Um, you know, if you're looking at different breakout metrics, you know, 21.8. And again, he's an early declare, but he's 22 and a half years old. So he's almost not going to play his first game until he's 23. So for me, you know, I have him on that alpha rating I was talking about. Jalen Waddle only scored a one. 
So if you look at the historical trends in terms of alpha receivers, I'm usually looking at about 187 pounds uh, in 5'11". He doesn't check either one of those boxes either. Uh, he's slightly under the BMI threshold. And I know people kind of shake their head like BMI, BMI. Um, but he's under 27. And I'm trying to kind of create loose parameters here where, you know, again, if I hit on a receiver that is a wide receiver two or wide receiver three, I'm hitting on those guys. That's like a double in baseball. You know, a double is not winning the game for you. It's just getting on the base and setting the table. So a double, you know, a double receiver is not necessarily winning your league. Uh, what's winning your league is the positional advantages. So I'm looking for alphas, either flip them, like I talked about earlier, uh, or if you get those guys, you know, they can potentially win your leagues or at least help you win your leagues more so than, you know, wide receiver twos or threes. So he just doesn't check a lot of boxes. So I'd be curious to hear, um, you know, what you what you see with his his analytical profile that's better other than he's an early declare. That's really the only thing, at least in my model, that I really like. Totally. Um, and you mentioned uh, Devonta Smith. Um, well, we have a couple questions. So Leroy wants to know, what's the biggest red flag you have with regard to incoming rookies? And on the flip side, what red flags do you feel don't matter that much or are overblown? So biggest red flag to me, um, I think too, are we, are we talking just prospects in general? Or are we talking about specific positions? Cause I think they do differ a little bit. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Are we talking prospects in general or are we talking about specific positions? Uh, we're talking, uh, prospects in general, um, for now. He didn't specify any position, uh, sp okay. specific positions. I mean, I'll just kind of lay out the red flags that I have with each you know, with each position. Totally. Um, I think with tight ends, I think tight ends I talked about earlier, I won't spend very much time on them. I think a tight end, I'm not as concerned where a tight end gets drafted. Um, I don't have the research in front of me, but there's been some good articles at DLF that talk about hit rates for tight ends and draft capital isn't that predictive for tight ends. There's a lot of tight ends that have succeeded as third, fourth, fifth round picks. Uh, the athleticism matters a lot more. Um, and anybody that knows Pat Corain from Establish the Run, him and I kind of got into it the other day about Brevin Jordan. Um, now, Brevin Jordan has a really, really good prospect production profile, but that's almost all he has, and he's really young. He's young, and he has a good production profile, but pretty much everything else, I'm a little concerned. So, you know, he was trying to argue that Brevin Jordan was the number two tight end in the class, and the argument was, well, a team is basically just going to use him as a pass catcher. That's it. You know, they're not they're not going to bother doing anything else with him because he's small he's not super athletic so basically they're going to pigeonhole him as just a pass catcher and i'm like that's not a bet that i really want to make because now i'm trying to predict how players are going to be used by coaches and in different offenses um so i think with tight ends it's athleticism i want to see guys obviously that are younger but also hit certain metrics in terms of athleticism so you're looking at obviously vertical jump uh, and you're also looking at their speed so those are two things i really that, that's all i chase at tight end i just chase profiles um, receivers for me, the way the receivers are, I'll, I'll make this one real quick. Uh, if you're an old receiver, I'm not interested. Uh, if you're, if you're good as an old receiver, uh, one of my weaknesses is not buying into older receivers quicker. Uh, I faded Terry McLaurin after we, after the first year, cause I chalked it up as a fluke. Um, I probably could have bought Calvin Ridley a little bit cheaper. Um, I didn't like his profile cause he was obviously old. Uh, so I think after the first year, if those guys produce, then you can buy back in. Uh, but I'm fading receivers in rookie drafts that are, you know, especially guys that are 23 or older, but even the guys like Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, you know, if you're 22 and a half on draft day, I, uh, 
that, that's just a, that's a deal breaker for me because I'm looking for value at receiver. I'm not as concerned about production because production is easy to find. Um, quarterbacks and running backs, honestly, uh, with running backs, we kind of talked about it earlier. Um, you almost have to look at what what their makeup's going to be. You know, if you know a guy is probably not going to be able to get more than 50, 60 targets in a season and might only catch 35, 40 passes at the most, uh, it's really hard for them to crack the difference-making uh, range. I mean, they basically have to be like Derrick Henry. They have to be able to roll off, you know, 2,000 yards, 15-plus touchdowns. That's the only way they're going to get there. And it's just there's not many guys that you can bank on doing that uh, year to year. And then, obviously, draft capital. You know, but who knows who the RB3, 4, 5, 6, 7 is going to be in this class. I, it, people are just going to follow draft capital, and then they're going to match up profiles with that. So I think with quarterbacks, um, you know, it's draft capital, but it's also, you know, we've heard a lot of people in the community talk about the the Konami code. You know, you have to be able to run. Um, I've done some research on quarterbacks. You have to be about 15% or better in terms of rushing share, so how you create your points. So I'm interested in kind of correlating that. It's really hard to to look at college production on that end and compare it to the NFL. Uh, but if we have at least one year down, if a player hits those metrics, I am a little bit interested, even if they're a buy low. Uh, so somebody like Daniel Jones, I'm still willing to give another shot on. Um, so yeah, I'm looking for quarterbacks, obviously draft capital for running backs and quarterbacks and the quarterbacks do have to have some mobility, which is not a new concept to anybody. Cool. Um, let's see here. Uh, <laughs> Diablo Gato wants to know, as a former power lifter, what's more impressive, A.J. Dillon's legs in general or Rondell Moore's squat load? Oh, easy one. Definitely Rondell Moore. I mean, Rondell Moore is like 175 pounds and he squatted 600. So even if he didn't get full depth on that squat, uh, anybody that's done Olympic lifting or CrossFit, you know, there's definitely a difference in what a squat looks like versus a, uh, you know, a power lifting or a, a football squat. Um, but it's still impressive. You know, I, I was never a great squatter, uh, but I'm also, I can relate to Rondell Moore. You know, I'm only like 5'8", 165 pounds. So, you know, if you're, he's slightly bigger than me, uh, an inch shorter than me and about 10 pounds bigger than me. Uh, so I can respect that weight because I could never put up anything close to that as a power lifter. So that is, that is legit to be able to squat more than three times your body weight. Totally. That might be a, somewhat of a controversial answer here. We're we're big on AJ Dillon's. Uh, <laughs> we're big on his legs here, and I mean his legs are just big in general. Um, hey, mu muscle's good. You know, you it's it, the the look is good, but you know, I guess in, in powerlifting, you know, if anybody's ever ever seen some of the best powerlifters, uh, it's you wouldn't necessarily say that it's the most aesthetic look. So totally. Sometimes that's just about pulling the weight. Totally. Um, user Sam wants to know, uh, any prospects from University of Kentucky that we should keep an eye on? Yeah, I love this question. So there's a couple. Um, they have, anyone's heard of uh, Wandale Robinson? He's been a pretty pretty um, highly touted Debbie prospect. Uh, he transferred from Nebraska. He'll probably be their best skill player next year. Oh, they have another good slot receiver. Um, Josh Ali is a guy to keep an eye on. Uh, probably a guy that ends up getting drafted next season. Uh, they have a running back that I actually think is very comparable, maybe a slightly better athlete than Benny Snell. They basically, Benny Snell called this guy uh, the next Benny Snell when he was in college. <laughs> uh, so definitely a guy to keep on the radar. Uh, Christopher Rodriguez uh, will be their starting running back. And um, they're going to work in a new offense, so it'll be kind of interesting to see how they use their running backs. But they actually, uh, one thing Kentucky has done is they have they have basically been the last four years 
they have essentially been like a military academy in terms of the way they run their offense. I mean, they have like the highest rushing share in terms of, you know, all they do is run the ball. And, you know, they, they've had some success in the SEC by doing it. But clearly when they get in games with teams with high-powered offenses, it's really hard for them to keep up. So you know, they've built, they've actually had a lot of guys from, you know, their offensive line that are potentially going to get drafted and a couple other guys that are actually going back next year. So they've had a really good offensive line and a really dominant run game. Everyone remembers the, you know, that's why Lynn Bowden and Benny Snell were so good. It wasn't that they were great NFL prospects, obviously, uh, but they get in this system and it's just like they can run for, you know, they're, they're running off 200, 250 yards uh, in any given week just because of the system. So, yeah, and then they have a tight end uh, to keep an eye on named Keaton Upshaw. Um, got got some playing time as a freshman. Uh, so I'd say those four, and then they have a few other guys. Uh, they have a kind of a pipeline of running backs. So I wouldn't be shocked if they have a couple running backs get drafted here in the next couple of years. Uh, a couple of highly rated recruits that are still in there. Uh, Kavosi Smoke and Michael Drennan. So those two guys keep an eye on. And then a sophomore quarterback named Bryce uh, or Bo Allen, who will probably be their starter next year, has a shot. Um, he has the makings of being you know, a potential guy that's on NFL radar. So I'd say those guys, those seven, that's enough. Cool. Well, uh, now we're going to kind of get into the uh, barrage of Bengals questions that we had. <laughs> we, we, okay. We got a lot for you. So um, June wants to know, as a major Bengals fan, uh, who do you want them to take with their first round pick? And what happens to T. Higgins' value if it is Chase? Yeah, so I am I am definitely team Chase here. Uh, I think that with what we've talked about, or what I have talked about, probably half this AMA is starting to leak over into the NFL. I mean, you've even seen some major NFL reporters uh, and media talk about how, wow, there's so many good receivers out there. And it's true. I mean, it's true. There are a lot of really good, solid receivers in the NFL. And every single year, it seems like we're pumping – you know, 13 to 17 more from college onto the first two days of the NFL draft. We're probably going to see that right now. I was looking at grinding the mocks earlier. They have 17 receivers going on day two or higher. You assume, you know, first three-round pick, you know, those are guys that teams count on to, you know, at least have a role originally, even if they're not a starter. You know, they're, they're next man up. You know, they expect those guys to be able to play if needed. Right. So when's the saturation point? So I look at Jamar Chase and say, you know, if Jamar Chase is as bulletproof as people think, and to me, he is. I mean, to me, he's he's almost a can't miss. I mean, he may not be like a Hall of Fame level prospect, but I think he's a true difference maker. I'm okay going for the difference maker in a league where it's so saturated. Um, you know, then you add the fact that he has the connection with Burrow. A uh, cool stat, Burrow was actually the last of, of quarterbacks with more than 35 pass attempts last season of more than 20 yards. Burrow was the worst quarterback in the league. He was nine out of 44. Um, on those attempts, just to Jamar Chase in 2019, he was 24 out of 25. So there is clearly a connection there between those two. And I think it might be overblown a little bit, um, but it can't hurt to have such a dominant connection reunited in the league, especially when, you know, I think most people would agree that both of those guys are pretty elite pedigree players already at their position. So pairing them up just makes sense. And I think this is also, you know, you have a deep, a deep class of tackles. And also one of the things about the Bengals is the Bengals do not pay interior linemen. They literally do not pay them. So they are going to look to fill the offensive line in the draft. And there's a lot of good guards and there's a lot of good tackle guard hybrids in this class. So I think they take chase 
And if it was me, I would take two hybrid slash guard tackles uh, in round two and round three. There's a lot of names in there like Dylan Raddins, Alec Leatherwood, Samuel Cosme. I mean, it's really just going to, there's going to be one of those guys that falls to them in the second round. Um, and I think that can address their guard need as well, uh, at least push it back another year or two. Because that's their biggest need, honestly. That's what got Burrow hurt last year. It wasn't the tackles. Um, it was the interior line. I mean, that's where most of the pressure came against them. Um, so I think that's what they, they'll address that. I think they need to address the line this year by taking three or four linemen in the draft, but I don't think it needs to be a first round pick. Totally. Um, Danny Dallas wants to know, uh, follow up as a major Bengals fan, is Joe Mix, uh, is Joe Mixon going to finally fulfill his prophecy as an RB1? Or uh, is he, basically, is he a buyer or a sell for you? Uh, sincerely, someone who's been burned by Joe Mixon. <laughs> so uh, real quick, I want to address the T. Higgins question. Um, I think T. Higgins, actually, his price on the market oh, yeah. right now is actually, it's already being assumed that they're going to draft Jamar Chase. Uh, so if you can get T. Higgins at, you know, wide receiver 15, 20, 25 prices, um, and especially in a startup, you know, if you have 15 receivers off the board and one of them's not T. Higgins, there's a chance they don't take Jamar Chase. So, you know, I, I still think there's some meat on the bone there if you wanted to buy him too. Um, obviously, if they take Chase, it kind of relegates T. Higgins down to that quote-unquote wide receiver don't matter range where he's, he's just a guy. He's going to be good, um, but I don't think he has the ceiling to get there. Um, so it's quite, clearly it's just going to depend on if they take Chase. But I actually don't think it's a bad bet uh, to buy him because when I, you know, I'm trying to sell him for the same reason. Initially, I'm going, man, I think they're going to take Chase. Let me try to sell T. Higgins. And you go to somebody and you say, hey, you know, I'll trade T. Higgins for you know, X receiver that's in the same tier. And they go, no, nah, I'm going to pass. I'm going to wait and see if they take Chase. Because that seems to be how the market's already reacting, that Chase is already a Bengal. Um, regarding Mixon, so here's the thing with Mixon. I mean, you can make the excuses every single year that he's burned you. He's had two years, points per game-wise, where he has finished inside the top 10. Those happen to be both the years where he missed significant time with injury. He missed three or more games in those years. So he didn't finish, you know, quote unquote, as an RB1 overall because he didn't stay healthy. Um, his, if you look at his, uh, his, target, his target percentage from last year before he got hurt, um, it was actually seventh in the league. And people don't really think about that. Now, he had a couple games where you know, I think he had an eight target game and a six target game. I mean, that's going to raise that's going to raise that number a little bit over a six game sample size. Uh, but if you look at those numbers I was talking about earlier, he's actually pretty high up in that like tier three of running backs where I don't think Joe Mixon can get to RB8 or better or RB9 or better, uh, but he certainly can get right on the edge of that. So right now he's being priced like RB20, 21. So if you can stomach it, you know, you can certainly pivot off a player that's a little bit higher. And I'm back in on Joe Mixon for this year just because, you know, they've cleared out the backfield. I don't think... Um, just from some of the the shows and interviews that I listen to because I follow the team pretty close. I don't think they're going to take a day two running back either. Uh, they like Samaje Pirine. You know, they paid him $2 million a year for two years. Uh, I think he's going to be, I don't want to say he's a handcuff that you have to have, but people look at him and say he's just a cast off. They look at him as actually, you know, their backup to Joe Mixon, a guy that could come in and he could, he could handle a workload of, you know, 20 touches for a couple games if Mixon got hurt. Uh, I think they draft probably a day three running back. Uh, which is perfect for this class. There's going to be a lot of, you know, kind of limited skill set profiles that fall to day three. Um, and that player competes with Travion Williams to be, you know, their third down back or just a third back on the team. So I'm not worried about competition for Joe Mixon. This is a make or break year, but 
I'm willing to bet on it. I think it's actually stock up for him, and he's just being devalued because he's quote-unquote burned people. Cool. Um, let's see here. I don't want to repeat the question. Um, okay, yeah. So uh, it sounds like you're sticking with uh, Mixon undervalued going into the year. Yeah, I mean, currently he's, what, RB, let's see, said like 21 RB20. in Dynasty? Yeah, 21. Yeah, RB21. So, I mean, again, if I, it depends on where you can pivot. Uh, but I don't think, you know, I mentioned earlier that trade where I pivoted Nick Chubb to Joe Mixon. I think Nick Chubb's better than Joe Mixon. Uh, points per game for their career, if you look at just their, you know, their overall numbers, he's about 7% better than Joe Mixon. But to me, 7%, especially if you look at, you know, Nick Chubb's touches with Kareem Hunt. He's only played like 34, 34 snaps a game with Kareem Hunt in the games he's played with Kareem Hunt. He's just not on the field. So if Mixon snaps goes up, I think I just think their range of outcomes are similar and their dynasty values aren't. And you're not really buying anything in terms of age or longevity. You know, Chubb's in a contract year two. So I think those types are perfect pivots. Uh, Dobbins would be a little more expensive, obviously. Um, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to pivoting off of Chubb, Derrick Henry, you know, one of those guys for Mixon, because I think the range of outcomes are pretty similar. Totally. Um, moving off of uh, the Bengals here, Space Ghost Force wants to know, uh, as a fellow Lexington College alum, uh, Transylvania, not UK, don't you absolutely hate how Louisville keeps churning out nice prospects? Oh, man. Yeah. You know, I, I absolutely despise Louisville. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I mean, I won't make any bones about it. I mean, I despise them, and I'm also a basketball fan too. And that's uh, that's a whole other subject. But um, you know, once they get out of college, I I'm so ingrained in dynasty and so ingrained in fantasy, it doesn't bug me as much um, where they come from necessarily. But yeah, I mean, I you know, yeah, of course, I don't want them to do well. I don't want them to win games. I don't want them to get good players. I don't want them to get players to go to the <laughs> NFL because that means they're going to get better recruits. So, yeah, it bugs me. All right. Um, and the the two – looks like we have uh, some questions in the Discord here, but uh, the two last questions that I had organized before this are just kind of random and fun. Uh, but Burn wanted to follow up on the question from Solar, what's your earliest fantasy football memory with, what is your earliest memory? Okay, two memories. So I said I had a statistics and accounting background. I remember uh, my dad actually wasn't, you know, he was a geography major. So, you know, I don't think he had, uh, he didn't necessarily have a, a formal math background, but he was always into numbers. Uh, and I remember him, I mean, he taught me, basic algebraic equations, you know, just multiplication, addition, subtraction, division. I mean, I was able to do that stuff basically when I was able to read. I mean, I always remember having an ability to do stuff in my head and just look at numbers and immediately, you know, calculate numbers in my head. So uh, that was one of my first memories. The other memory was um, I had always had a, a knack for playing sports when I was a kid. And I remember the first time I ever actually played like a formal sport, I was two years old and, um, it was baseball, and I would hit a balloon with a paintbrush. And I still remember that. I don't know how, because it's 35 years ago. But I remember literally in my living room hitting a balloon with a paintbrush. Like, my dad would pitch me a ball, which was a balloon, and I would hit it with a little, you know, wall painting paintbrush. So I, that's my earliest memory, I'd say. 
Nice. Um, and Diablo Gato wants to know, uh, so do you own a bidet? If not, why? What if I told you that for... This is still part of his question. What if I told you that for $40, you two could have a squeaky clean behind? <laughs> uh, I don't. Uh, my wife does. Um, I, I see it around, uh, but I don't own one. Um, and what if you told me I could? I mean, I'd be down. I'm down for trying it. Anything that kind of can kind of help you with uh, better hygiene, I'm good for. <laughs> yeah, I think I maybe have to give it a try. It's just never been anything that's, that's crossed my mind. So judge me for it. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, well, we have uh, the Clippers here uh, wants to know what were your best lifts. What were my best lifts? So the most I ever weighed was like 180, 178, 180. I mean, that's normally where I lifted at. Uh, my best lift, uh, my best bench press, it just in terms of ratios. Um, I was 168. It was like 315 was my best bench press at that weight. Uh, my best deadlift at 165 um, was 465. Um, so if you do the math on that, it's like two, 2.7 times my body weight. Uh, and then best squat was like 380. So total slightly over 1100 pounds, um, total wise, nothing, nothing amazing, but again, I'm pretty, uh, pretty small guy. You know, I'm only five, eight, like I walk around like 160. now that I don't, I don't power lift anymore. I'm mostly just, uh, you know, body weight and getting in the gym for a sweat. Um, I really, one tip, if anybody wants to get into powerlifting, I did it all throughout my twenties. Uh, it's, it can really beat up your body if, uh, you don't take care of it. You know, I was in the gym training six days a week, uh, maxing out way too much, you know, up late at night, you know, doing it just crazy workouts, you know, deadlifts and squats really tax your central nervous system. So watch that. I definitely don't have the, uh, the gas in the tank. Like I did 10 years ago. For sure. Um, Diablo Gato, <laughs> I forgot to put this in with the bidet question, but he said, follow up, best purchase under $100 in the last year. And then he added, mine was a bidet in case you wanted to know. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> um, so best purchase, I, I will say actually at the beginning of this year, um, tax time, I actually purchased uh, Dynasty and Chill LLC. Uh, started a company. I've always kind of wanted to do that, especially with the the sheer amount of money that I put into fantasy football in terms of, um, you know, I go to Las Vegas every year. I play in the FFPC main events, play in a ton of dynasty leagues. I subscribe to a ton of services. So, I mean, I, I, I put in a lot of money. I invest a lot into the fantasy space. And so I wanted to funnel it through a company where I could actually you know, maybe, maybe do something with it in the future in terms of, you know, where do I want to take it, but I wanted to have something separate from, you know, my own personal income. So sure. that was the best purchase. I got an LLC filed for, had somebody do it for me for $99. So technically that's under a hundred and, uh, hopefully it will at least help me expense a lot of stuff for the next three years. <laughs> there you go. Um, and the final question that I see on here, unless anybody wants to come in with some last minute ones, is uh, Bryce just wanted to follow up on the, uh, say for example, you're moving off of Chubb for Mixon. What, what sort of would you be looking to get on top to make that trade uh, really a home run for you? So 
Yeah, I mean, I gave the example of the deal that I made. Um, I traded the two. I mean, this was a 12-team Superflex with 1.5 tight end premium and only 10 starters. So I think that's the first thing is you have to look at the type of league that you're in. You really have to look at the number of teams, the number of roster spots, and the number of starting lineup spots and figure out, you know, what is the scarcity like? Also, is it one running back or is it two? In a start one running back, I'm actually okay pivoting off a of running back even more because there's not the same scarcity. So you do have to look at those details. But just the one that I gave the example of was, you know, I think a lot of people would look at that trade and say, well, I like Chubb a lot better than Mixon, and I'm still going to get a good player with that, you know, that 209. And I looked at it and said, knowing just based on my numbers, again, I'm making the bet here. You know, even if it's Chubb has a 60% chance of outscoring Mixon, I don't see their career arcs or career tracks that different. So I'm making a bet on Mixon to at least be able to keep pace. And I know I'm not going to be able to get a 2023 first for that 209. So I don't, I wouldn't say it's a home run. Um, but if you just took Chubb and Mixon out, I'm not going to be able to flip that 2023 first. I'm not going to be able to get that for the 209 most likely. So it's really more about constructing the team the way that I want. And the reason I did it is, again, that's a league where that was my third 2023 first. So my goal is to basically not lose anything in terms of my win rate potential, because I think Mixon and Chubb slot very close to the same spot in terms of my impact on my team. Uh, but I want to have, you know, four first-round picks in 2023. I know I'm going to have to replace either Mixon or Chubb by 2023. So I want to be the one that has four picks. So I can easily do that. I control the board. So it's more of it. It wasn't necessarily that I hammered home the value. It's more that it, it fit with the way that I was building my team. And I'm trying to look ahead. So... I think probably, you know, another useful player I think you could maybe add if you, you know, were in a deeper league and you wanted to add like a wide receiver three, someone that you know can get that 12 and a half point threshold. That's about the threshold to be a wide receiver three over the last five years is about 12.3 points. So if you can get somebody that gets above that or you think can get above that, I don't think that's bad, especially in like a start 11 or more league. So yeah, I think it's team dependent, but just something that helps the direction of your team knowing Nixon and Chubb maybe don't have that big of a difference in range of outcome. Totally. Um, and we did have a, a question that I glazed over. Um, and Scotty Knows wants to know, why is it that people named Scott are so damn good at fantasy football? Uh, I don't know about that. I think, um, <laughs> I mean, shout out to another Scott, no doubt. I'm sure he's probably a good player as well. So hit me up if you have anything you, uh, you want to ask about or if you have anything you think you can teach me always open for learning. I think I wouldn't say I'm a great, I would not say I'm a great fantasy football player. You know, I actually, I actually had a really bad year last year in redraft and redraft is a lot more of uh, trying to pick players. You know, you don't have the same runway that you have in dynasty, right? You know, in dynasty, I, I typically can, you know, I typically think I can outplay some of the players in my league just based on some of the stuff we've talked about roster construction process, making bets going forward, you know, maybe thinking a little bit further ahead than some of the other players. Um, and, and also leveraging the fact that I have 55 leagues. So I'm very easy to pivot off of on a trade. I'm easy to move with if it fits what I'm trying to accomplish on my overall portfolio. I also manage my dynasty portfolio like a portfolio. So I do try to manage you know, how many shares of players I have, uh, where my exposure is, and basically say, I'm going to put together a bunch of good teams I'm going to win on the roster construction and exploiting some of the rules and the scoring that we talked about. So, I mean, 
I wouldn't say I'm a great player. I think I'm just trying to get an edge maybe in a place where a lot of other people aren't even thinking. Um, and you never know. I mean, you get in a pretty casual dynasty league. There's a lot of people that aren't, none of the stuff we've even talked about is on their radar. You know, I'd be scared if I'm in a league with a lot of play, people in this chat because it's like, you know, I'm in some leagues with uh, almost all, all the people in the league are patrons of mine. And I, I sometimes struggle in those leagues just because I, you know, they, they know what I'm trying to do. You know, they'll counter offer and basically tempt me on things that they know I want to do. And I'm going, man, you're making it really difficult. So I think when you get, if I played in a, a league with a bunch of players that were like me, I, I, it, it'd be tough because I'm not that great at evaluating players per se. That's not my strength. For sure. Um, well, he just says that you're being modest. Um, and, <laughs> okay. and, and on that note, um, oh, let's see. Uh, I guess here, here's another last minute question if you got time for one more. Um, do you think dynasty players undervalue yeah, sure. or underweight the impact of the business side of football on fantasy? Hmm. Underway the impact in the business side of fantasy. There's probably like four directions I could take this question. I, I do think that, you know, if you're a content provider, you have to be transparent in terms of what your goals are. Um, and I also think if you're seeking out content providers, you also have to be able to decipher, you know, what what are their what are their ultimate goals. Um, I, I I used to kind of get upset in the past of like, you know, this person. Because as you as you start to make connections and network with people, you know I'm I'm in a lot of leagues with a lot of quote unquote analysts that have podcasts that write articles that are basically you know even some of them are doing this for a living, um, and I've played in some high stakes leagues with the same people that are out there on some mainstream sites that I know are are not playing in some of the levels of leagues that I'm playing with playing in, but they're the ones that are working for you know, a big company and they're giving advice for a living. And so I think you just have to be able to quickly decipher, you know, am I listening to this content provider because they are out there to make money? You know, that's one thing that I've been very true to my patrons about. I have a, I have a really good day job that I like, you know, I would never want to work in the fantasy industry full time because I would probably grow to dislike it more. You know, if you told me this is all I did for, I mean, I already spent 50 hours a week on dynasty and fantasy. So if you told me it was going to be a hundred, or 80 and I had to do it for a living and I had to basically do what other people told me to do, uh, I'd probably grow to hate it. So I think that's one of the benefits is, you know, who are you following? What is their agenda? Are they, are they putting out this podcast or this content because they have somebody that says you need to fill a quota and you need to write an article about this because that's what's going to get the most clicks? Um, or is it somebody that's literally started organically like me as a player behind the scenes that had no following five years ago uh, but made my way through, you know, high stakes redraft, um, have won some big tournaments, have won some main events in the FFPC. I mean, I've basically done it from the other direction. So I think people kind of know that I'm coming at it from a perspective of like, I just want to win. I'm looking for the process that's going to help me win, help you win. And I'm just banking that there's going to be a sector of the community that's in it for other reasons. So I guess that's the best way to answer that question is without kind of pointing out specific individuals or specific companies. For sure. Um, well, on that note, that looks like uh, everything that we have on here. Um, do you have anything that you want to plug for everyone listening? No, I think it's really cool that you have this going on uh, and you have these AMAs. I mean, I was checking out the Patreon channel earlier today or the um, Discord channel earlier today. Um, you have a lot of, you know, a lot of interaction. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I think 
you know, the one thing I would leave people with is, you know, you have this place and you have countless other places where you can get content. You're not winning in Dynasty anymore based on knowing more than somebody else. You're not winning anymore because you get the most alerts on your phone or you subscribe to the best services that have the best rankings. That's not why you're winning. I mean, it helps to have all of that, but I think you do have to take it to the next level and you do have to kind of come up with your own process and leverage, you know, leverage people that do things that you don't do well. You know, I'm not a big, like I said, I don't really watch. I like to watch football because I like to watch football, but I can't tell you what's going on in the field from a technical standpoint. So I don't even try. I don't even talk like that. So you'll never hear me say, you know, this guy has great separation or, you know, this player does this when I was watching the film. Because, hey, I'm not watching film. B, I just leverage the other people that I know are actually doing that. That's their brand. So I try to interact with them on my podcast, try to pick the brains of people that are different than me and hope I can come up with a process that can beat people. Because I don't think you're beating people with information. There's so much content and so much information out there. Uh, if you're just going based on that, you know, you do not have an advantage over most people in your league. So come up with your own process and try to think outside the box and don't be scared to make big bets on yourself because, you know, what what do Dynasty Leagues pay out? One, two, three, top three places? I mean, you know, don't, don't go along with everybody else. Take take shots to try to win and, you know, go, then go the opposite direction if you don't. You know, you want to get all the way to the bottom. So Cool. Well, uh, Scott, thanks so much for taking the time to answer all these questions. I know we kind of came at you with a lot of different angles here, but uh, we really do appreciate it. And, you know, you gave us a lot of uh, really interesting and, and good advice for people to follow um, as we're sneaking up to the draft here. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. A lot of uh, good variety of questions. Hopefully I, I have a tendency to be a little long-winded in some of the processes. Um, so I would implore anybody that's, interested to you know check out our patron channel um, i go into a lot more depth with the patron podcast on talking through some of the processes but there's you know it's a lot it's a lot of process with me so sorry if i was a little bit long-winded but i appreciate you guys having me no no i i think you gave us a lot of uh really valuable insight into exactly what your process is and kind of how you get the, the gears going so um make sure you're following scott if you haven't already and um hope you have a great rest of your night man yeah, appreciate you. Have a, have a good night, everybody. Thanks. Take care. Later.